I basically invented Google AdWords, AdSense, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coulda, woulda, shoulda. <laughs> coulda, woulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The term growth is actually a fairly charged uh, word in many ways and controversial. This week on Sand Hill Road, growth, not the personal kind. We'll leave that to a therapist, the business kind. The way that I think about it is that growth is a blending of marketing, product, and engineering all put together. Brian Rothenberg is a partner at Defy Ventures, helping his portfolio companies grow, relying on his own experience at Eventbrite and later TaskRabbit. One of the big lessons he learned, he says, the loop. Growth creates growth. Well, how do we get that person who loves our product to tell more people? It can be really self-reinforcing. And, and it, as you said, a loop that comes back to the top. You see this like in uh, in Uber. Uh, you know, like uh, I order an Uber and while I'm waiting, you know, I may come across, do you want to drive for Uber? Exactly. Uh, you're creating both riders and drivers. In Eventbrite's case, you saw the people buying tickets thought to themselves, hold on, my church does a thing, we could use this. That's exactly right. That was actually one of the biggest growth loops for Eventbrite and, and one that I had a hypothesis coming in, um, talked to the founders about before joining. And then as I unpacked after joining some of the key levers for the business, it was very clear that a huge portion of people who ended up organizing events on Eventbrite's platform started out by buying a ticket. And as we unpacked sort of, well, what's going on here? Can we influence this? we learned certain things. Like once somebody bought a ticket to two or more events, and once they bought uh, across two categories, so say a beer tasting and a food event or a beer tasting and a, a marathon, they had this epiphany of, oh, I can use Eventbrite to organize anything. And so when they had you know, the PTA fundraiser, they would think of Eventbrite. And we found ways to uh, amplify that awareness, that understanding, and drive people to convert from attendee to event creator on the platform through the product and marketing channels. One, one of the things, and I should say, you you were at Eventbrite when it was tiny, to, yeah. you know, went all the way to the IPO. So right. back when it was still tiny, one of the things I'm guessing you figured out was that, or customers figured out was I don't have to charge for my ticket. Uh, it can be a free thing, which doesn't really do anything for your bottom line, but you still allowed it. Well, that, there's a really funny story there. And it was kind of, we stumbled upon it through dumb luck, but it ended up being so powerful to the business. So uh, in the early days with Eventbrite, uh, there was a question in the onboarding flow, how much will you charge per ticket? And we assumed, and the intention was to always be a paid product, 
But people started entering $0 into the pricing field. And we saw this and we scratched our head and thought, huh, like, what do we do here? And I remember talking to Kevin and Renault and Julia and others at the company. And uh, we decided, let's let this thing go and let's see, let's see what happens. And over time, free usage became enormous. In fact, over the course of the company's life, it accounted for roughly two-thirds of all events were free. And another interesting thing that we saw emerge is free growth typically led growth of the paid business. And so at a very consistent rate, it was basically like a freemium product. People would try the free product and then convert over to paid into paid over time. Uh, I remember writing in our S1 filing, showing the chart of that conversion rate and also um, seeing it was just incredibly steady. So it was a very powerful growth loop there. We found ways to increase that, that free to paid conversion again through working with these growth teams across the full product and across the full funnel. And it was super powerful. And growth, when you're calculating that, is more than just we had 10 customers uh, last month, we have 100 customers this month, and we hope for 1,000 customers next month. It's not just a linear thing. It's mm-hmm. it's how long you hold on to them and That's what right. they do. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we, we did a lot over time as the user base became enormous, tens of millions of consumers on the platform, hundreds of thousands of event creators. You really have to segment the audience to understand, well, are there power users driving the, the numbers that we care about, like revenue? Is it, um, you know, are all users equal. And what we learned is, like in most businesses, it tends to be a power law, 20% drive 80% of the value. And so finding ways to keep those customers happier, um, to solve their needs, um, to focus on uh, types of creators who were driving the business, like people who hosted repeat events versus one-off events, as an example. Um, So yeah, it's really full funnel retention, monetization, everything. You know, one of the ones that surprises me as far as growth or, or usability is iMessage on Apple. Now, if you're the one guy using an Android, all your friends do pressure you to, you know, oh, dude, you turned the whole conversation green, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, and, and and certainly there's no doubt that Apple uh, iPhones are, are very good sellers. I am surprised considering how often my iMessages are central to my life. I'm, I'm texting, you know, my my girlfriend on them, but also our group chat, also the boys trip uh, coming up chat, et cetera, that yes, there are things that you can incorporate into it, but that it hasn't become the way to move money, the way to, to, to schedule calendar events, et cetera. It seems to have gotten stuck. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm similarly, I use it uh, every hour of every day. And I would have expected over time there to be more functionality. So as you said, payments, calendaring, sort of a vertical, vertical experiences built within it. I just haven't seen it. And I'm not sure why, but you look at um, like China, for instance, WeChat, payments are prolific. Um, uh, Other use cases, that's really the core. And so I don't know the exact driver, but it, it is a curious, it's a good question. The other place where there wasn't as much growth, I think, as you were hoping was the previous job, and that was TaskRabbit. Um, it did not take off. Now, eventually, Ikea buys it. I mean, right, right there's, a, there's right. an exit. Right. Uh, and uh, I always thought Leah Buskey was a wonderful leader. She's amazing. Uh, in that. Yeah. She is. She's in venture now. I think. Yes, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is cool. Um, but it, it just didn't catch. And can you kind of compare and contrast your experience at TaskRabbit with your experience at, at Eventbrite? 
Yeah. So the, the history uh, with TaskRabbit is I actually started a company in the local services space. So uh, uh, tangential to TaskRabbit. Yeah. You got acquired, right? Yeah. So we ended up selling to, to TaskRabbit. And um, the backstory that's not widely known is we were talking to Thumbtack, we were talking to others. And I think if you played forward, you know, going with a Thumbtack may have been a better outcome for us. But, um, you know, at the time, TaskRabbit was growing extremely quickly. It looked like a rocket ship. I think some things that they got right early on were, you know, they were really a pioneer of the gig economy. And if you think back to that time, it was a It was huge, a wild idea. Yeah. Wild idea. Yeah. People were blown, their minds were blown. It captured the imagination of both consumers and new entrance to the gig economy in terms of what's possible. Uh, and with TaskRabbit, it's trading money for free time. And what's our most valuable resource? Often it's our time, right? Or helping people flexibly make more money on their own terms, on their own schedules, et cetera. So it was a big idea. And they captured a spark in the early lightning. So when we did sell the TaskRabbit, the business was growing 30% monthly consistently. It looked like a and the, and the setups there. I mean, it's just like Uber. Oh, you know, it's like I could hire somebody. Wait a minute, I have a skill I could do. I could be a task rabbit. It's it's just like Eventbrite. I need to have a need. Wait a minute, I have an event. Yes. But you know, but somehow it doesn't catch on. Yeah, and I think there there were a few reasons. Um, but you know, it was growing word of mouth. People were sharing it. It was it was amazing. You'd see it would penetrate a, a neighborhood in San Francisco and quickly spread. And so. I think all of us thought, oh, this is going to the moon. There were venture capitalists walking into the office trying to pitch us. They preempted the next round. It was amazing. But um, some things that went wrong, I think. One is there was actually a flaw in the initial uh, product that was uh, not helpful to their growth. And I'll categorize that as um, the initial model was a bidding model where consumers would come in, they'd post a task to be done, say, I need this type of work, I think it's about five hours or whatever. And then the taskers who are on the supply side providing the service, they had to bid on a project basis. So they would think, mm, I don't know, I guess maybe it's five hours, maybe it's 10. So um, oftentimes there would just be a mismatch in terms of expectations of the job to be done. And what would happen is consumers would either way overpay for what would actually happen, or the taskers would perform a job and end up working twice as much and they felt burned. And so what happened is, it impacted liquidity. People stopped bidding as much on projects or they'd bid and hedge by pricing it super high so then the consumers wouldn't follow through. And what ultimately happened is the matching rate between somebody posting a task to be done and getting that job completed successfully, it was steadily declining and it dropped towards 50%, which is just too low to come in to a new product experience. I'm not going to try it again if I can. Yeah. That's exactly right. So people who weren't successfully matched and didn't get the job done in a successful way, they never came back. And so the top line was growing so fast. I think it masked that problem. But as we came into the business through this acquisition, we started to see ah, this looks problematic. We've got to solve this. And they ultimately did. They pivoted the business. They moved to a more hourly-based model. Um, they went into a much more vertical focus and, and they did re-accelerate the business, but it was a painful period. Uh, and the second big thing that I think went wrong at TaskRabbit is um, there's this, this well-known image, I don't know if you've seen it, of Craigslist with all the links on the Craigslist page. Oh, yes. And it's it's everything on the internet is essentially Craigslist. It, it becomes this and that. It becomes StubHub and <laughs> Elance and Airbnb and all these vertical solutions. And if you looked at TaskRabbit's homepage circa 2011, uh, and I'll show you this image here, you know, the page looked kind of like TaskRabbit. There were house chores, grocery shopping, all these different categories. And if you look at the companies that came up behind them with a vertical approach, like Instacart for grocery delivery, um, yep. there were even tasks like, 
my first task on TaskRabbit that I had fulfilled was give me a ride from my apartment oh, no. to the airport. Which is Lyft, Lyft Uber. Lyft. Yeah. Lyft. And yes. so again, these vertical, very specific use cases became multi-billion dollar companies. And I think they sort of ate away at TaskRabbit's horizontal approach. So yeah, this uh, visual you show me is the uh, 2011 version of the TaskRabbit homepage where you can get house chores done, delivery, shopping, office help. And then in the margins with arrows pointing to them are all the things that eventually became those things, things like Postmates and Instacart and Thumbtack and Grubhub and Lyft, et cetera. Um, yes, they were almost too general. It would have been That's better right. if they had decided to be a food delivery service or just a person delivery service. That's right. We actually had a discussion as we saw these uh, rides starting to take place. Uh, Lyft was just pivoting from Zimride into Lyft and pushing this forward. And we pitched, hey, maybe we should create a vertical app around this. And we ultimately didn't oh, pursue no. it. So, I mean, <laughs> these strategic decisions happen, but uh, we know how that played out. <laughs> I had an idea on our, went very early with the television station uh, website. Uh, I said, you know, we're, sh- we're selling these banner ads. What if, you know, we, the computer examined the wording in the article? that the person was interested in, travel to France or whatever. Yeah. I basically invented Google AdWords, AdSense. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coulda, woulda, shoulda. <laughs> coulda, woulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What sort of lessons from TaskRabbit or uh, Eventbrite have you taken as you are guiding uh, new portfolio companies now that you're in venture? Yeah, I think one benefit of the experience across the growth side is every founder is looking for ways to grow faster, cheaper, sure. <laughs> et cetera. So it turns out that skill set is in pretty high demand. And I think um, one of the things that I've done successfully in transitioning to venture is really bringing that operator mindset and partnering with founders. Uh, and for example, 
Um, early on when I joined Defy, I actually spent a day a week at one of our portfolio companies as their interim head of growth, helping them work through a really important inflection point in the business, um, was helping them with their growth experiments, product feedback, et cetera. And ultimately, you know, they did the hard work, they get the credit, but helped them get to their next level, the next funding round, et cetera. So again, I've done everything from spending a day a week in the office to whiteboarding sessions on strategy, to helping to hire reviewing data with companies. I will go as far in the weeds as founders want me and try to let them do their own thing when they don't. But really, I think that that foundational experience of learning how to grow a business from founding through to IPO is, uh, at least my founders oh, tell me, it's, it's super helpful. It's invaluable. Them. Absolutely. Now, when you're, when you're a small startup, uh, what works for a Google, like an A-B test, doesn't work, uh, you know, because I've only got five customers. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I found, um, I actually have a, a post that I wrote about this, how growth is not one size fits all and it has to evolve. And so one of the things is very early on, you don't have a lot of data. I tend to be very analytical and data driven, but that applies at a later stage when you yeah. have the data. And so early on, it's really, how do you find your core base of 100 fans that love you? And why are they showing up? Why are they showing up? What do they actually specifically love? How can you communicate the value that they receive to new people who come to visit your service, your app or your service. Um, but really, it's much more qualitative and working to dial in. Do people love us? Are they telling other people about us? Are they spending money? Is that velocity of spending money and or sticking with us growing and improving over time? And then once you have that core nucleus, you can expand into more ways to attract you know, the next thousand, hundred thousand million users. And then it becomes a different approach to growth from there. Can you give me a specific example of something that worked? So one company that I'm proud to work with is called Alto. It's a real estate marketplace helping homeowners sell their homes directly to qualified buyers outside of the MLS. Uh, and they're calling it self-serve real estate. So putting people more in control, selling for lower fees, et cetera. And I've known this founder, Nick, for about a decade. We met as founders in New York. Uh, he's great. He and the team are great. But one thing that I helped them think through um, early on was they saw a similar dynamic where people would start out browsing homes as buyers on the site to see new listings. And then they might find a property that they're interested in purchasing and think, oh, well, then I have to go sell my house. And so if you remember the example that I provided earlier about Eventbrite, people starting as attendees, people looking for things to do, and then Eventbrite becoming top of mind and then converting into the, the creator event creator side. Well, there's a very similar loop here where people discover homes and then they convert into home sellers on the platform too. And so really help them think through um, some of the past parallels with Eventbrite, whiteboard some flows for how we can increase that awareness on their platform. And it's been a really big channel for them. So it was fun to take some of my prior experience, be able to apply it in this case and, and help them think through that to grow faster. I can see the frustration, right? I mean, the person goes on, finds a house they want to buy, and then goes to find a realtor to sell their house. The, the, the firm would be, Alto would be like, no, wait, hold on. You don't get it. You could sell your house here too. That's right. And you can do it. Do you really want to pay 3% to the seller or do you want to, we'll help you, but you do some of the work and you pay 1% instead. And it's a really valuable uh, uh, offering. Rothenberg has been investing and advising at Defy coming on five years now. You have entered, if you entered four years ago, you, you came into the system when the money was free-flowing. Uh, there was almost no place to put it all. Uh, into a whatever we are in now, nobody can come up with a good definition of where we are now. Yeah. What sort of changes have you seen in those four short years? 
It's been a wild time. You know, I joined in 2019. We were at a period of time where you could actually meet over the series of weeks and or months, get to know a founder. You had time to do diligence, et cetera. And then fast forward to you know, March of 2020, people thought the world was falling off a cliff. And I remember people were scared. They didn't know what to do. Um, and I'll tell you, Defy, it was actually our most active quarter of investing ever. So we uh, put to work a huge portion of our second fund in that quarter. And I think that comes from having seen past downturns and believing, hey, you know, this is meaningful, but we believe it's a temporary dip. And so we had the conviction to go to work hard in that period. Then you fast forward to the back half of 2020 and it starts to get crazy. I think people felt like they were sitting on the sidelines. There was a lot of FOMO. You know, feds were pumping money into the system. Uh, venture firms were raising billion dollar, then two billion, then three to billion dollar funds, and all, all the money had to go to work. And so it was just this frenetic time. And then you put that also in the context of it has moved to Zoom entirely for first meetings. So you're spending a day where you have 16 30 minute meetings back to back. You know, that's an extreme example, but it it, it just the pace was frenetic. And uh, you know, as we went into the back half of 2020. We actually worked to get a lot of our companies marked up and, and funded in that period of time and into 2021. And 2021 was actually one of our slower um, deployment paces just because we felt like pricing was getting out of whack. It was getting a little bit extreme. And while it felt uncomfortable at the time to not be playing the game of let's just throw money around, in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. And, and now that we're back in uh, the current market or where we are, where it's you know more measured, people are not deploying, um, we just activated a new fund. So we've been fortunate to raise our third funds, $300 million early stage vehicle. Um, we've made uh, three or four investments out of that new fund and, and we're meeting entrepreneurs every day. And while I think a lot of people are pencils down, we're, we're actively working to find great entrepreneurs and back them despite it being a down market. It is strange that in the four years you've been doing this, it's been like the the sampler platter of investing of of the boom times, the you know maybe not bust times, and throw a pandemic in there, and and it's just in four years. It's been a wild ride. Yes, I, I feel like maybe that's been eight years of normal learning time. But oh, uh, easily. But it's it's been it's been great and challenging and all the things. Your family is from San Francisco, and it goes back a long way. Uh, tell me, tell me about who came to San Francisco. And, and when? Yeah, so I'm proud to be, I call myself a fourth generation San Franciscan, although I, I live outside of the city, but my great grandparents immigrated to the US in the 1800s. Um, so they made their way to SF. They operated two jewelry stores in the post gold rush era. My grandfather um, that came from that, that side of the family was very blue collar. He was a mason and an electrician in the city. My grandmother worked at Lowell High School, which is a well-known high school in the sunset. Uh, my my grand, my father and his sisters grew up uh, in the sunset. And so my brother and I were the first to move out of the city to the suburbs, the East Bay. But we just came back to the city all the time. It was my dad's life. And, and we learned the history of the city, where he had grown up, where my grandmother first you know grew up, et cetera. And so I just have this uh, amazing affinity for the city. I lived there for over a decade as well myself, post-college. And uh, I think it's one of the greatest places in the world, although facing its own challenges now. Well, that was going to be my next question, right? Is is that someone who can authentically say they are a San Franciscan uh, and has seen so many changes? And of course, the generations before us saw changes. It used to be a, mi a military town. And then, you know, it was the the summer of love and, and then it was a tech boom and 
and now it is whatever it is. What 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 is it, and and what do you make of it, having so much history in your family in San Francisco? Yeah, so I was in the city yesterday and then taking things in, and I think it feels like it's coming back from the the COVID um, depths. I would say. Uh, it was a little bit sad for me over the last couple of years to see the state of the city. It, it felt like it was in many ways in disrepair. People had left, et cetera. Um, and there was probably a time where I would have said, I don't think the network effects of San Francisco can ever be broken. Um, one story that I love is I actually started my last company, Skillslate, in New York. I convinced my co-founder to come out to SF to see the city. And I was trying to convince him, "Let's we have to move to San Francisco. We were sitting in a Starbucks talking through a problem that we were facing that we didn't know how to solve around our business. And the person next to us had been in YC, had started a similar company and chimed in and said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but here's how we thought about that problem. And it was this unlock for the business. And so that convinced him, oh my goodness, there's this depth of talent and serendipity happens and, uh, and it's just incredible. And, you know, I think maybe the density is less than what it was five years ago or so, but it is getting better. People are out, they're seeing each other. Uh, and I just have a lot of confidence that hopefully it'll come back. I think we have to get some things right around safety and people have to feel safe and, and hopefully we do get there. Ryan Rothenberg, partner at Defy Ventures. Now, this is not our first trip to Defy. In our archives, you can find an interview with Defy co-founder, Trey Vasala. Tony Fidel and Matt Rogers, an, an incredible team, um, you know, that basically created the iPhone, the iPod, iPhone at Apple, um, you know, walked in our door with an audacious plan to build a uh, smart thermostat. Of all things. Of all things, right? You know, really super exciting thermostat. And you're like, wait a second. I had been spending a lot of time thinking about wow, well, there's there's something really special about the thermostat. You know, magically, the timing couldn't have been more interesting. You know, they walk in the door. And so for me and for for Randy, who had been thinking about this with me, you know, it was so obvious. But for for bringing around the rest of the people around the partnership, it it wasn't as obvious because, yeah. Just so I understand what you're saying, you were thinking about thermostats before Tony walks in the door? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You're kidding. No, no. <laughs> the the I was waiting for somebody to come in and pitch me a thermostat, and then somebody did story is one of the least likely stories I think I've ever heard it, in Silicon Valley. It is kind of crazy. Trey, one of the original investors in Nest, is now director of worldwide operations at Apple. One of more than 100 interviews with world-changing thinkers in our archive. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com. <laughs>